indeed would be a Brexit trade deal on Christmas Eve and the deal itself was published on Boxing Day. The deal will be put to the House of Commons on Wednesday when Parliament is recalled for the first time over Christmas for many decades and then the transition period ends on the 31st of December, Thursday at 11pm. You'd be forgiven for missing the details of the deal during the festivities over the weekend. So this morning we're unpacking what's covered in it, 1,246 pages worth of it, and what's also not in it. Professor Anand Menon, director of the Think Tank UK in a Changing Europe, joins us now. Good morning, Anand. Morning, how are you doing? Good. Now, have you read all 1,246 pages? I confess I have not. Not quite all of it, no. I'm about halfway through, I've sort of dipped in and out. Well, the, you've read lots of summaries. Interesting, I, I managed as far as the EU summary and the UK summary, both published about 30 pages each. And you would be mistaken for thinking they were talking about two completely different agreements if you read them side by side. But let's talk about the, let's talk about the half you have read and the summary of, of, the, of the rest of it uh, as well. What I think is most striking, Anand, is obviously, first off, it's a tremendous achievement on both sides to negotiate a, a full trade deal in what was basically 11 months during a raging pandemic, first off. There's a lot of clarity on goods, the export of goods, the import of goods. We know how that's going to work now uh, quite succinctly. But there's a lot that's unresolved, isn't there? Some huge areas which still have to be negotiated. It's absolutely the case. I mean, firstly, just to echo what you said, it was a huge achievement to get this deal, not just because of the pandemic, but also because the two sides approached the talks with what looked like fundamentally irreconcilable principles. So to have squared those circles, I think, is no mean feat. But yes, one way they've done that is to leave a lot of things open to future negotiations. So whether it's the question of ultimately deciding on fish quotas, or figuring out whose standards may be undercutting whose and what you should do in retaliation to that, it sets in, in train a number of processes that will play out over the next few years. And that was one way of dealing with the fact that it was quite hard to secure agreement now. Well, there's several things in it that, that strikes me in my uh, primitive reading of it over the weekend as well, because I also uh, abandoned most of my Christmas to get my head, head around it. <laughs> There is the bits of the deal which it is, has been agreed will uh, have to come back to at a later date. So, for example, if Britain decides to diverge uh, from the EU's uh, or the joint level playing field, as we should now call it, uh, new tariffs will uh, be imposed on the UK. Or, well, of course, if the EU diverges, that is something we know that's going to be decided on later, whether Britain decides to diverge away from the EU. Ditto whether Britain decides to take back more of its fishing water. So, if we park those... Uh, Rumsfeld, Rumsfeldian known unknowns, if you like. <laughs> There's also the unknown unknowns. So data, security, uh, services in particular, those all are still active on, ongoing negotiations, are they not? Yes, they are. And you can add to that financial services. Data and financial services are both subject of unilateral EU decisions, adequacy in the case of data and equivalence in the case of financial services. So we're ultimately waiting for the EU to decide whether or not we can continue with some kind of access uh, to the market. Uh, security broadly defined, sort of foreign and defence policy, the British government didn't want to negotiate anything around those in the talks themselves. So they've been completely left out of the treaty. Uh, there are aspects of police cooperation and other forms of internal cooperation. Ultimately, they will hinge fundamentally on what happens over data because police forces are so reliant on sharing data that that's absolutely key. So that adequacy decision takes on a real significance. 
And the UK, until a full data agreement is made, the UK is currently suspending some of its data rules, so data continues to be exchanged with the EU, is that correct? Yeah, there's a five-month uh, five period during which uh, data will continue to be uh, exchanged pretty much as it was when the UK, as it is now, in fact, when the UK is in the single market and the customs union. Okay, that's the highbrow techie stuff. Let's get on to the consumer. What does it mean to uh, you or I or your average time radio listener if, if they want to travel to Europe, go on holiday, buy a house, that sort of thing? What, what's in the deal for them? Well, it means for the tiny things like, for instance, you need to have six months validity on your passport before you travel. Uh, Michael Gove is today uh, encouraging people to take out comprehensive travel insurance before they travel uh, to ensure that they're covered in all eventualities. For those who live or have a second property inside the European Union, the residence requirements have changed, which means that you can stay a maximum of 90 out of 180 days rather than going over for six months. Uh, and perhaps the most fundamental thing is for those who work uh, in the European Union, if you go over to uh, deliver a service or something like that, you're going to have to sort out a visa uh, and you might have to talk to the authorities in the country in which you work about whether your qualifications are accepted now because something called mutual recognition of qualifications that allowed lawyers and architects to travel to the EU and work as if they were at home now no longer applies. If you're going on holiday... What difference does that make? Clearly, there is no more freedom of movement. We, we know that much. That includes freedom of movement to uh, go on holiday anywhere in the EU as much as to, to, to work. But uh, surely no one in Europe will want to put up barriers to British tourists coming and spending their, their hard-earned money in resorts all around the place. No, absolutely not. Uh, there won't be visas for tourist travel. Uh, but Michael Gove again today, interestingly enough, said people should check with their mobile pro phone provider about wh what the arrangements are for roaming. What that means is that basically we're no longer covered by EU rules uh, to limit roaming charges, so it's going to be up to the mobile phone providers what they do. But actually, I expect in the short to medium term, there's going to be very little changes for tourists because, as you said, people are desperate. I mean, the holiday industry is suffering from the aftermath of COVID. They're desperate to get people treat, uh, spending and travelling again. Is it fair to summarise, Alan, that this is a deal that has huge significance for your business, whether it's uh, in services or, or goods, but for the average consumer, the average bloke or blokeess, your life really isn't going to be changed too much by uh, the advent of the deal or, or indeed leaving the EU? I think that's probably true. I mean, I think that there are economic impacts of the deal for the country as a whole. They're quite sizable, but they'll be quite diffuse and will play out over time. So you'd have to really be trying to track what's going on to be able to identify the precise implications of Brexit. But I think for most people in their day-to-day -day lives, now that we've avoided tariffs and quotas, which would have had an immediate impact on prices, then those impacts can be far, far harder to spot. Let's talk a little bit about the, the politics of the, of the negotiation because uh, it was quite internal for many people to follow. I have to say it was quite internal for, for journalists to follow as well. We were trying to work out what was going on. And actually, it, I don't know about you, it struck me as a journalist trying to chronicle this whole thing throughout the last year that both sides were really talking for a very sort of absolutist position. The government was saying, we must have this and we will not uh, surrender any of our red lines. And, and the EU was saying precisely the same thing too. When Behind the scenes, actually, there was a frantic amount of compromising going on as each side was, was actually quite quickly abandoning their red lines to come towards a deal, and especially so in the last few weeks. Is that an accurate summary? 
I mean, to an extent, yes, I think that is true. But bear in mind those documents that you spent your Christmas reading outlining the UK's uh, interpretation of the deal and the EU's, the very fact that both sides were able to come away and write those papers that said basically we've got what we wanted speaks to the efficiency of the negotiators in sorting out an agreement that allows us to maintain trade whilst allowing both sides to say face simultaneously and say we got what we asked for. And that, you know, that speaks to the sort of uh, real achievement that this deal represents. That is indeed the sign of a good deal. Both sides get yeah. to walk away Absolutely. claiming victory. It's, it's, exactly. the, it's the classic. So this is a tricky question, Anand. Which side compromise most? With your reading of, what, at least 600 of the 1,200 pages so far, can you discern who was the actual winner? I think it's really, really hard to do that because, you know, whilst it's clear that, for instance, the British government compromised a little bit on its ask on fishing, what they've got... Uh, is a trade deal the like of which no one else has got with the European Union. Treaty and quota free is no mean feat. Uh, the add-ons have surprised many people. I really would say that both both sides have come away with this with a pretty good deal, uh, particularly given, I think, how low expectations were a couple of months ago. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true. Uh, but, you know, those expectations were lowered on purpose, weren't they, by, by both sides. So, look, let's look forward. What happens next? We've already talked about those ongoing negotiations on services, financial services and data. I think the government and the EU have to come sort of some sort of agreement on financial regulation by March. What happens on the 1st of January, though, for uh, the city? We're in London Bridge now, looking out over the city of London, a very, very cloudy, foggy city of London. It's pretty empty at the moment. But come the 1st of January, all those traders and insurance providers and the like, uh, do they get to continue business as usual? There certainly won't be business as usual. Even if the EU gives us this equivalence decision, the nature of our ability to trade financial services in the European Union will change. It will be far more limited. And what we've already seen is a number of the big financial institutions have taken the steps they need to, maybe registering an office within the European Union to allow them to keep trading there. But equivalence will allow significant amounts of the business between London and the EU to continue. So it really is crucial for the city, albeit that it will not preserve the status quo. Okay, uh, that is a about seven or eight minute canter through the, the, the Brexit trade agreement struck between Boris Johnson and, and the European Union with Anna Manon, uh, the director of the UK think tank, uh, the think tank rather, UK in a changing Europe. Anna, thank you for joining us this morning.